welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, I have a fascinating uh, guest today. He has, of course, incredible credentials, but what is even more important is his personal experience, um, which helps to explain what the craziness is all about that's going on today with college students. and they're being pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian, and all of that, and hating Israel. Um, so today's, the, my guest is Lee Habib. He's a Newsweek columnist. He's the vice president of content at Salem Media Group, and he's the host of Our American Stories. He also wrote this amazing es- essay um, in Newsweek uh, called... Arab like me, question mark, how 40 years of campus McCarthyism led to hatred of Israel. Fascinating. Um, so welcome to the show, first of all, Lee. Thank you. Um, when did you decide, I mean, have you written something like this before? Or have you talked about this before? Or is it just with the, you know, the recent events since October 7th? Well, I've written about the Arab world's anti-Semitism several times, particularly as Jared Kushner and Donald Trump were doing something remarkable with the Abram Accords, which was finding the space, the safe spaces for Arabs to get together and proclaim their their love of Israel, which is a very hard thing to do in the Arab world because we've been taught for a very long time that Israel's bad. We've been we, we've been pretty much uh, propagandized nonstop into straight old school anti-Semitism. But with the rise of Iran and the rise of Hezbollah and the rise of Hamas, it was very clear to many Middle Easterners and many Arabs that Israel wasn't the problem. Iran was the problem. And the radicalization of groups like Hamas, ISIS, all the things that occurred after our invasion of, frankly, after America's invasion of Iraq, unleashed the furies, ISIS eliminating and mass murdering Christians all through the Middle East, a a mass, uh, almost genocide that still to today has not been properly covered. I'm a Lebanese descent and Christian Lebanese descent, but my grandfather saw all of this to come because he always said it's not the ordinary Muslim that's the problem. It's not the Middle East that's the problem. It's the marriage of anti-Semitism and Arabic culture and the inculcation of straight-up Jew hatred, Nazi-style, and Soviet pogrom-style that is the bane of the Arab world's existence, and that the Arab world would never progress so long as it had its sights set against Israel and not against Iran after the Iranian Revolution in 79. Hmm, a wise man. (laughs) Very wise. Um, now, first, I'd like you to start by telling your story, kind of as you tell it in your in your essay. And then what I want to get to is, ultimately, is um, how, this is a question I've been sort of wrestling with, how to um, make Americans wake up 
particularly the ones who are rioting, protesting, and you're not supposed to say rioting, right? Protesting, you know, pro-Hamas and, and pro-Palestinian. Um, but even, even people who aren't protesting, who don't get it. Uh, you know, I was saying before we started about how I work as the terrorist therapist. I've been doing this since 9-11, 22 years trying to not only trying to help people cope with terrorism, but to wake people up to the fact that the terrorists haven't gone away, that this is something that for a thousand years they have been planning, global jihad. And so these people in America who, you know, um, whether they're protesting or not, they just don't get it, that, that all of us, each of us is in danger. So maybe we could get to that towards the end, but I'd love to start with your story first. Sure. You know, I, I grew up a Lebanese kid, the only Arab kid in a, in, a, in a northern New Jersey suburb, and all I got treated was was beautifully by by white folks. And I'm, I've never considered myself a white person. I get darker than Barack Obama in the summer, but I never thought of myself as a brown person or a Lebanese person. I saw myself as a quintessential American kid growing up in a place where people made fun of each other on the edges about their ethnicity. There were Irish jokes, Jewish jokes, Arab jokes, Puerto Rican jokes. And we sort of, well, you know, we coped with it. We certainly couldn't come home to our parents and claim safe spaces. So we had to learn to cope with uh, our each other's differences, learn to love each other, see past a slight and not orient our world around the slights among us and rather to the commonalities among us. So it was a pretty beautiful upbringing I had. And, and ultimately, I become editor-in-chief of my student newspaper in uh, northern New Jersey, the largest private school at the time, uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University, which I know, as I just learned, you attended as well for a year. And uh, it was a simple piece that I don't even remember anymore because it seems so obvious to me. We had our troops, American troops, stationed in Lebanon. There was a civil war there. We were worried about instability in the Middle East. We had an interest there. So we had our Marines just parked there. Well, Arab terrorists, Muslim terrorists blew up that base. More Marines died that day than in any day in American history since Iwo Jima. Over 240 U.S. Marines blown up. And the, the Lebanese war was spilling down into Israel from the north. This was right after the Iranian revolution. And Iran was just beginning its waves of trying to create massive instability in the Middle East using radical jihadist groups. Hamas didn't exist yet, but it would soon. And Hezbollah was just beginning to be formed at the time that that was happening. All of this Iranian funded, much of it Iranian funded. And so all I wrote was that Americans need to be there. We have an interest. If we weren't there, the Russians or maybe the Chinese would be there. More importantly, Israel is our ally through and through because they represent all the things that Western civilization represents, that we were hoping one day that the Arab world would become more civilized as it related to human rights in the Middle East, the basic notions of like women being able to drive and vote, something I thought would just be absolutely simple with a universal chorus of hoorays for Habib for saying something so daring. But my Arab friends cut me off because I committed the cardinal sin that, that black people commit when they side with white folks. And that is, we keep our problems inside. How dare you talk to the outside world about Israel? We we may have our, our own notions about some of the good things of Israel and the bad things, but when we go out into public, Israel's the bad guy and we're the good guy. So I violated some secret blood oath, but I expected that. I'd been around Arab anti-Semitism all my life. What I did not expect was my liberal friends in the liberal arts department 
And it was this was a minority then. In 1983, the radical progressives were just beginning. They were young professors in our English and arts department. They were the young graduate students. And they were being radicalized by books like Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon, by the works of Michael Foucault, the French philosopher, and Edward Said, a glamorous Palestinian professor at Columbia, all of whom were creating a model, a post-Marxian economic model that revolved and organized the world around oppressors and the oppressed. And Western civilization and white people, wherever they went, they were they had their wealth and got their wealth through imperialism and colonialism and theft. And they stole it from dark indigenous people. And, and, and thus, you had to choose sides. You were either with the oppressor or you were with the oppressed. Now, for young people, this is an alluring choice because you simply have to vote for the oppressed and you have instant moral superiority. You have an instant virtue claim. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to, to, to claim it. Uh, and, and it was almost a religious claim. These books were almost uh, religious in their zeal. Though they, they, they were against Christianity and they were against uh, God, they were, in essence, a different kind of religion with its own clerics and its own protocols and its own sanctification. And if you were to simply believe the way that the, the, the elders believed and, the, and these new, what I call new Marxists, cultural Marxists, and you went with this oppressed oppressor model, well, then you were good. And I, of course, thought this oppressed oppressor model was rubbish. I, I, it was very silly. And I, I got disowned not only by the Arabs on my campus, but by the progressives on my campus. Okay, let me stop you there for a second, because at that um, sort of point, that... Um, that was a kind of point in time. A, a how is it that what what about the professors who did not believe this? Like, how did the this new wave of people that you're talking about? Um, how did they overcome, override, take more power from the professors, the old school professors who were there? The old school professors, my old liberal professors, believed in the dialectic. They believed in the, the Kantian, idea, Kantian idea that the thesis and the antithesis clashing together would create some kind of synthesis, that iron sharpens iron. So the old traditional Democrat longed for the debate. What was interesting about these new progressives is they simply canceled me. They did not want the debate. They had organized the world in a simplistic form. You either brought their religion and their clerics or you were out. It was a heresy. So this was something very new in academia. The idea that as these people rose, they wouldn't allow disagreement on their campuses. They wouldn't hire people who disagreed with them. Okay, as they rose. But yes. like, what about when they were first coming in, um, infiltrating the, the colleges? Um, you know, there would have been so many more professors who would have believed in things, you know... In American history, for example, the way it was, um, who would not believe, be believing these things that they were, how, how were they able on the, on the scale of a university? How were these new progressives able to overrun? There were so many more uh, old school professors. How were they able to overrun them? Well, they didn't actually overrun them. They outran them, and it's a difference, right? They 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 saw their march as one over forty or fifty years, and what they would do is they would win by attrition. 
Let those old timers think what they think. But when we get our doctorates from Harvard and Yale, the seminaries, I consider them secular seminaries with an orthodoxy that they're going to push. And everything else is a, is a, is, is, is not just uh, an apostasy. It's, a, it's almost a criminal thought. Like it's so absurd that we're not even going to address it. So over time, this group, through self-selection, chose themselves as the new rulers, the new ruling elites at the universities. And it's you know, and and they captured first the Ivy Leagues. This is why Edward Said was so important. He captured Columbia, and within two generations, all of the young students he trained up and gave doctoral theses to, all of which leaned to the left or far left. You got rewarded for that doctoral dissertation, but if you were like me, an acolyte of Adam Smith and freedom and markets, oh my goodness, you weren't ever going to have a tenure track. You weren't even going to be granted a thesis. You get a hard time. So what they did is they did something new in academia. They basically used McCarthy-like tactics that the right had used in the 1950s in a very narrow fashion. It was a couple of you know senators and a very short period of time. But they used those same tactics over 40 years. And they did it not so politely. Look, I went to University of Virginia Law School. I was there in 1988 with Laura Ingram in our freshman class. And all of the young hires in that law school, all of them, Pam Carlin, who's now at Stanford uh, and a big powerhouse there, Michael Clarman, his first year, he's a powerhouse at Harvard now. All of them were from the far left. And they didn't want to have a discussion. There was no Professor Kingsfield dialectic with those people. They sat on the mountaintop, 25-year-olds, lecturing us, many of who were older than them, about what the Constitution really meant. That it was an old and silly document and that they had the right ideas and we were wrong. And there was no debate or back and forth in those classes. It was simply their way or the highway. This was a new kind of tyranny and it was rewarded in the academic system. And routinely over time, what happened is a lot fewer people decided to become English majors. It wasn't that they overran it. You know, Fairleigh Dickinson, I went there, had 1,500 English majors. Today, it's probably about 300 because you don't get to study Shakespeare anymore. You don't get to study Chaucer and Milton. They're dead white guys. No, you're reading memoirs from Kendi, and that's considered literature, but it's propaganda. Shakespeare is not propaganda. When you're finished reading a Shakespeare play, you're looking at your own wounded heart. You're looking straight into the mirror of human nature and the human heart over time, corruptible, filled with venality, and filled with ego and pride. And any of us could be a fellow. Any of us could be manipulated by an Iago and have our greatness winnowed down to nothing to the point where we ruin our own lives. Great Western literature made us look at ourselves. The propaganda of these Marxists was, we're not going to look at anything. Here's our truth. Here's our truth. And we don't care about your truth or the truth. Of course, you know, something like uh, writers like Shakespeare, um, you know, you have to have a certain degree of intellectual capacity to understand what you were just talking about. And nowadays, since everything is dumbed down, starting in elementary school, you know, a lot of those people who get to college wouldn't understand the depth of Shakespeare. No, and the moral depth, right? And the moral complexity. It is easy to look at another person and judge them and their heart. But the person you've got to worry about the most in your life, anybody with any sense knows this, is the person looking back at you in the mirror. Mm -hmm. We are capable, all of us, of terrific harm to our marriages, to our kids, to ourselves. We can sabotage ourselves better than anybody else. 
could ever sabotage us. And so the nature of this, the reflection of this, and the ability to look not only inward, but upward to a higher power is what Western literature was built upon. Suddenly in comes this post-Marxian cultural uh, religion that basically allows kids to say no to the old religions of the world that required much of us, that required much of us, and to now requiring nothing but a mere assertion that you're a member of this club and therefore righteous and thereby virtuous, and everybody else who's not with you is the enemy. And this is a unique thing to do with children and a terrible thing to do to children. Yes, yes. And and actually, you know, it, it appeals to even young children. It's so easy, the, the oppressed or versus the oppressor. Of course, you're going to want to side with, with the oppressed, you know. Right. Um, I mean, I've been talking about how uh, these, these protesters... Um, you know, really, they uh, they side with Palestinians because um, because they feel that they are the they they claim victimhood, BLM and and you know things like that, and LGBTQ plus and people like that who are protesting um, feel uh, uh, identify with the Palestinians because they see them as victims or as the oppressed, like they are, or, or so they feel. Well, we need to take a break. Our first break which um, is very un- unfortunate. <laughs> um, and I, I um, would love to uh, just remind you, my guest is Lee Habib. He's a Newsweek columnist, vice president of content at Salem Media Group and host of Our American Stories. And we will be right back with his story. So stay tuned. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, 
Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about how 40 years of campus McCarthyism led to the hatred of Israel. And who better to talk about this than my guest, Lee Habib, who has lived it. He actually was in school as he just began telling his story um, in the early 80s when schools, colleges were changing and this um, kind of um, uh, Marxism or um, oppressor, oppressed versus oppressor uh, thinking was coming into the colleges. And it's just so sad that... um, that it didn't get stopped, you know, back then when you saw what was happening, because now it's all over. I mean, it's in, it's even in kindergartens with CRT and, you know, trans stuff and, um, and everything else. And, and so we're, we're, we're raising, I, I say that our schools are like madrasas, you know, it's just like they are, we are being Americans are being taught the same kinds of things as people in the Middle East madrasas are being taught. Um, why don't you, you know, you started to mention that, and, and I'm aware of, I mean, most people aren't aware of this, like just how, how, how in the Middle East um, they start from, from when you're four, you know, like pre, pre-kindergarten, um, teaching all these things about Jews and Israel and singing songs and carrying guns and all that. Tell us about um, what it's like. Well, I was so blessed because my grandfather would countenance none of that. In fact, there's large parts of my Arab family that we just simply dissociated from because the anti we came to America to escape that nonsense. And we didn't, we didn't countenance it. We knew what it would lead to that kind of vile and stupid hatred. And it, it reflects a kind of self-hatred, actually. It, re- it reflects an actual self-doubt. To, to hate people for no reason. It, it reflects a lack of confidence. It reflects envy. There are so many negative connotations that came along with that. You know, when I was a young Arab, it would never bother Arabs what Saddam Hussein was doing to his people, what Mubarak was doing to his people, what was happening in Iran with the mullahs. But Israel would make one misstep in the West Bank and they'd go crazy. And that's when I knew you people were pathetic. You've got the worst dictators, the worst things happening in your countries. And the only thing you can think about is a country the size of New Jersey who took <laughs> a desert and turned it into something. And you can't stand them for that. You know, the Jewish people are 0.2%, 0.2% of the world's population, 0.02, but 20% of the Nobel Prize winners. You would think the Arab world would want to say, what are they smoking and eating <laughs> over there? And let's be like them. But we know, Dr. Carroll, you know this in your practice. You know, envy is a envy may be, I think it's why it's the 10th commandment, because it's the worst. It's the worst thing in the world, envy. It knows no bounds. It's a cancer that can't be filled. You want that other guy's stuff, and it doesn't matter how much you take from him, you still hate him until it's all gone. And now you hate yourself. Mm-hmm. So you get nothing from envy. And I believe that the Middle East has been built around not only old school anti-Semitism, Jews are horrible and Jews steal, but Israel's success was proof of their thesis that they must have succeeded by stealing. Uh They're in cahoots with America, the country they run, the Jews run America. Heck, I've never met a Jewish man who runs his own damn household. 
Yeah, <laughs> in America is preposterous, but it doesn't matter. This is the narrative that allows them to breathe, to get up every day, and go to sleep every night. And ultimately, it's starting to get broken around the edges. Just from my piece, a bunch of Muslim folks I know who thank me for my piece, I said, you should write your piece. Talk about what you were taught as a young Muslim. You're not betraying your faith to talk about the problems in your faith any more than my Italian grandfather wanted to turn in the mobsters who were who were putting a gun to his head and making him choose a certain garbage collector and not allowing him to make his money. It's not Italian self-hatred to turn in the mob. It's yeah. Italian self-respect to turn in the mob. And until the Arab world has more self-respect and not filled with self-doubt, um, this these monstrosities will continue. I can only tell you the Abram Accords, the, the Saudi-Israeli uh, relationship that it was about to happen, normalizing relations. This is why 10-7 happened. This is precisely why 10-7 happened. They wanted to stall and delay the modernization of the Middle East towards the West and away from the radical mullahs and the radical Muslims, not all of Islam. It's a, it's a perversion to say that all Muslims want this. I know so many beautiful Muslims in this country who have run and ran from that, including many of the Iranian friends of mine who escaped in 1979, pulling what little they had out of there before they would be executed for being friends of the Americans. So I have tremendous sympathies for people who are hostages in countries with no real information, uh, no real internet, no real schooling, no real education. Propaganda is a is a disgusting and dangerous thing. And you can't blame innocents who've never heard another opinion uh, that, that, they, that, that they're right or wrong. You know, a lot of these kids marching in these streets, and by the way, this is a minority of college kids. Most college kids are not studying the liberal arts. They've left sociology. They've left anthropology because these are wretched fields now. They're filled with propagandists. And when you, you propaganda is not interesting. The English departments of this country have gotten much smaller. They've just gotten much louder. But most of the kids here, I'm in Oxford, Mississippi. I live in a college town. Old Miss is here. Most of the kids are going to get their accounting degree, go see a football game, meet a girl and get married. They're not holding from the river to the sea stickers of the 100 million college students in this country. There's maybe a couple of hundred thousand, maybe 500,000 who think this way. They're a loud and ugly minority, but they do not represent, and we should never pretend that they do, the ordinary kid trying to put himself through a community college or a state college. They're rolling their eyes at this stuff. They, they want to just get a job. They want to participate in the economy and get a house and get married and, and have kids. They're not that much different than us, but the university system, particularly the liberal arts, has been completely corrupted by these modern day cultural Marxists. So what do you, do you think, uh, do you think there's any hope? What do you think? Oh, I think there's tremendous hope. You know, my dad reminds me that in 1968, as he was going to graduate school, he became a superintendent of schools, an educator his whole life. And he said, Lee, the country goes in swings. There are these pendulums and extremes. And he goes, in 1968, I was watching young college students. My dad was an Army, uh, an Air Force uh, officer. And he came back uh, after serving in Korea uh, during the Korean War and coming back through the ROTC things. And now he was going to graduate school. So he'd become a, a superintendent of schools. And he was seeing all these young kids finding out he was ROTC and spinning on him. 
And, you know, were, those kids were calling cops pigs, soldiers pigs. America's flags were being burned. We had the Black Lives Matters was Black Panthers. Antifa was the weather underground. And these kids said, I don't trust anyone over 30. And have sex with all the people you want. Marriage is a ball in a chain. And uh, the patriarchy sucks, right? And what happens? Richard Nixon wins. He wins again. But for Watergate, Ford would have won. And then Reagan wins. Then Reagan wins again. Then Bush wins. And then Bill Clinton comes in to save the Democrat Party from the far left, right? So we've had periods of this extremism. But America is so dead in the center, the center right, uh, so dead center that the far left is going to be driving mass amounts of voters straight into our arms because they're not asking the parents permission to have their opinions. For the religious people in this country to be respected, we're happy to respect the LGBTQ community, but are they willing to respect us? And they're not. They don't want to disagree, a disagreement. They want, they want in the end, what they want is absolute obedience. Yeah. And they, they're not tolerant, they're intolerant. And we're tolerant, but at a certain point, you push us too far, and the next thing you know, you have a parents' rights movement that I've never seen the likes of which in my life. Yes. Uh, the education savings accounts that are happening in a dozen states right now have passed laws that allow the state funding up to $8,000 a kid to follow the parent, not the school. Mm -hmm. This is a revolution. So this is what happens when things swing too far to the left. And I promise you, if they swing too far to the right, like the McCarthy period, there'd be a price for us to pay for telling people who are liberals or progressives that they can't speak. I want progressives to speak. I want communists to have their point of view, but I want them to respect my point of view too. And then we live and let live. And we choose to live in places where we want to live. It's always been the American way to not punish a person because of their opinions, but to just disagree with them and then go out and have a beer. And this new kind of McCarthyism on the left is worse than the McCarthyism we had propagated as Republicans in the 1950s against communists, ruining their lives, destroying their careers, and not thinking a thing of it. Yes, well, I think <laughs> I think we need a little bit, a little bit of back of that. <laughs> well, look, what I'm hoping is that when we do get power, what we don't ask for is the purging of the left, but fairness and balance in the faculties going forward. And I think that there, you're going to start to see DEI get dismantled in a lot of these colleges. I think you're going to see a lot of lawsuits. There's going to be a lot of looking in the mirror and going, how is it that history professors are 95% liberal? How did that happen? And how do we fix that? How do we get young law graduates like me, who might have wanted to be a professor, to say, hey, there's a tenured track for you. It's a guy who believes Justice Scalia and the originalist interpretation is legitimate. And when that happens, then the, the academic institutions will be fixed. And if they don't fix themselves, we're going to do an end run around these institutions. And they will have turned themselves into an obsolete, uh, an obsolete institution. They've got to be very careful now. 10-7 was a come to Jesus moment for these folks. And none of them believe in Jesus or any other kind of God. <laughs> but boy, they're listening to constituents. And by the way, they're looking at these kids chanting from the river to the sea and going, how the heck did this happen? Right? How the heck did this happen? And I know how it happened. You created these monsters hmm. through your inhibition of free speech and combat of ideas in a campus and the balance of faculty. You were, you were worried about diversity of every kind in the world, but intellectual diversity.
Okay, but now, um, you know, the thing is, though, that it's going to take time to do all of those things, to get rid of DEI and to get change the profession. I mean, you know, it's going to take a long time. Maybe it'll take another, oops, maybe it'll take another 40 years to, um, to, to change, um, to get a, a new set of professors in there, for example, or at least half to replace half, you no. know. So how what's going to happen in the meantime where uh, there's an increase in violence? You know, it's not just um, protesting, marching with signs and all that. There's actually, as of course you know, uh, violence on college campuses or on street corners and all of that. You know, they've taken it to such a um, a high pitch that people are getting are getting um, attacked and killed and all of that. How how is this going to even out? Like you know. Well, again, remember in the late sixties, and if you knew anything about New York City in the late sixties and straight up to the mid seventies, you didn't even want to go into that city. Uh, that city was so dangerous and out of control, right? And there was anarchy around the country, but our cities were completely unmanageable. By the time Rudy Giuliani took over New York City, they were averaging twenty three hundred murders a year. A year, twenty three hundred. That went down to under three hundred under Mayor Bloomberg, and now it's up to 400. So yes, it's a little bit more dangerous than it used to be, but it's not 2300 anymore. And it's not Venezuela and Caracas. And people even in liberal cities are being booted out because of no cash bail. I mean, safety is primordial desire of liberals, Democrats, progressives, and conservatives. Those single moms living in Chicago are gonna march the streets and say, bring me back my police. My kids can't play in the park. So ultimately, these crime things swing too. We get too high a crime rate, and then the police have to knock down. And then they knock it down, and they get the crime rate so low that now suddenly stop and frisk or other tougher policies look like they're too extreme. So then things have to swing back. And I've just been a real student of history. And these swings come and go. Anti-police sentiment, then pro-police sentiment. Then the police get so good that now people take them for granted. And then when it put one cop messes up and 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 you know doesn't get put in prison, which by the way happened far too often. Bad cops used to get away with a lot of bad stuff, and they could do a lot of damage. And I was so happy. I'm always pleased when a cop who does something really bad gets thrown out of the force because too often the unions protected that one bad cop. My dad hated the bad teacher, and he couldn't fire them. And a couple of really bad teachers in a school system can really do a lot of damage if they're in the third, fourth, or fifth grade. You're stuck with that bad teacher for a year. The unions did the same thing with really bad cops. They keep moving them around from neighborhood to neighborhood, like the Catholics did with some of their bad priests. You've got to go after those people because you have a higher purpose and power. And I've got to tell you, the police departments have never been more clean. They've never been more diverse and representative. They've never been better at what they do. And now that the, you know, the left went too far, people are yearning and running, people are running for office in these cities on being tough on crime. So it took a generate, it took a, it took 10 years of craziness to come back to sanity. Well, but you know, in some cities, they're allowing illegals to be police. Hey, look, every city and their voters are going to work this stuff out, Right. And, and the joy of this is that the, the America has got, it, 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 we, we have spread our authority through so many channels. Most of Americans, most Americans don't live in the very violent sections of the, of the worst cities in the country. And you got to remember, the cities have sections, right? 
some sections commit most of the crime. Right. And most of the city doesn't have most of the crime. I spent a lot of time with Laura when I was doing Laura Ingram's show with the guy who ran Comstat at New York City. And Comstat was a computerized look at where the crime was actually happening and where it wasn't. And what they simply did is they deployed more cops where the criminals were. What a crazy idea, right? And then they put those guys away because when criminals are away, they can't commit more crimes. Plus, there's now a deterrent to young people thinking, huh, a life of crime is scot-free. Well, not here in New York City. You go to some other city and commit crimes where they're not so serious. And you saw a major reduction of crime. And I'm talking three and 400% over two decades because we'd finally gotten right about crime. But, you know, like all things in life, Carol, even in your own life, you start to become a successful stock investor. The next thing you know, you get arrogant. You stop doing your homework. And that's the day you really mess up. And so vigilance is hard, especially in a democracy. The crazies are always ready to come out and exploit a depression, exploit a, a stock collapse, or exploit something like George Floyd. And that, that's going to run its course until it doesn't. And then it ends. And what you're left with is a mess to clean up. Minneapolis, I've been there four times since the George Floyd thing. It still hasn't recovered. That city is still large parts of it. A, a, a death zone, and most of the small business owners who were ruined, their lives ruined, were Somali. They were Blacks from Africa, working hard to try and advance their families, and BLM burned down Somali businesses. You can't make it up. That's really, really sad, yes. Really crazy. Really bad. Well, when we come back, um, I want to start talking about how to get people to understand what's really going on in the world and to wake up to to all of this and to what I was starting to talk about about terrorists and so on. So when we come back, we will we will uh, get back get to, to that. Um, meanwhile, I want to thank my guest Lee Habib, and um, and I guess uh, what would you like me to? Well. Of course, Newsweek, Newsweek columnist, uh, Salem Media Group, and host of Our American Stories. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about um, how 40 years of campus McCarthyism has led to hatred of Israel. And my guest, Lee Habib, has been explaining it from a first-person point of view. He was there when the universities started being taken over by progressives who had this oppressed oppressor mentality. That's a lot easier way to look at the world <laughs> than Shakespeare, right? Yep. <laughs> Anybody can understand that. You have two teams, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so... How, what, um, well, I'd like to talk a little more before we get that about, you know, like some of the, um, I know about like songs and games that are taught in the madrasas in the Middle East, um, like talking about Israel, um, you know, making Israel the number one source of, of, um, all the problems that, you know, that whatever country it was has um and you were talking about like the jealousy and so on the envy um and and really in very cruel kinds of ways i mean very like if we if they did that in america um where anybody knew about it you know with the with the propaganda and so on in such blatant ways um one would like to think that it wouldn't exist although Although in, in a sense, I mean, does it get that bad? Okay, in the colleges, what you were, what you've been talking about when you were in college and and law school and so on and, and saw all this, did it get as bad as it is in some places in the madrasas? You know, with with like ugly pictures of Jews and no, no, it never did, and it still doesn't. I, I want to make it clear to everyone who wants to understand this. These kids don't hate Jews. They're not like Nazis in this way. They're not like the pogroms. By the way, they're not like the Look, I'm a Christian. It is not pretty what Christians did to Jews throughout the centuries. The Christians did the same kind of thing against Jews. They blamed the Jews as thieves. And what, what Christians did to Jews through the centuries was not pretty. Jews have been hounded and chased by just about everybody. This is the truth. And, uh, and thank goodness we're at a point now where modern American Christians are completely allies with Israel now. And that kind of uh, anti-Semitism is persona non grata. But in the 19th century, that wasn't true. In the 18th century, that wasn't true. I have Jewish friends who told me they couldn't golf in golf clubs in America. No Jews allowed right up till the 1970s. So the yeah. idea of anti-Semitism is deep and runs deep everywhere. Um, 
Well, go ahead. I really didn't mean to. I was just going to say um, my experience of it is um, that when my father got out of grad school and was looking for a job, he had to change his name from Lieberman. Uh, he changed it to Lambert because right. otherwise he wouldn't get interviews. Get the word. So it really does exist. It does. And it, and it comes from that place. Oh, the, the, the Jews killed Christ, right? Oh, how ridiculous. How so simple-minded. Um, and, and, and these tropes have always existed for the same reasons they still exist. Because the Jews have been very successful anywhere they've gone. And they've been successful precisely because they're Jews, right? And this is the reason. They're, what they believe in the Torah, their moral sentiments, their, 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 their knowledge of who they are, Jews, the knowledge of their chosenness. It's a wonderful thing to know your chosen people, to know that you're children of Abraham, to know that you can overcome strife and triumph over it. What a thing to imbue kids with. You're not victims. You're victors. No matter what happens, you're a victor. Now we're selling entitled kids the idea that they're victims. Mm. How crazy. How crazy. So this is why Jews have frustrated people throughout the centuries, despite the persecution, despite the anti-Semitism. Jews triumph everywhere they go, including Israel. Remarkable thing. So the, so the, the types of anti-Semitism being taught in the Arab world, the book, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a, a tract invented by white people in Russia for the pogroms. Hitler got his hands on it, put it into the Nazi school system. That got its way over to the Middle East through Hitler and through the Soviets. And so it's just taught that Jews have horns. Jews are evil. But this is not taught in our colleges. No, no. Something different is being taught in our colleges. Anti-Israelists, anti-Americanism, anti-West are all lumped together as a white disease, even if you're not white, because you're thinking like a white person. You're thinking like a capitalist. You're thinking like an oppressor and not the oppressed. And if you identify with the oppressor, if you uh, identify with being a victor, of gaining wealth for you and your family, gaining rights for your family and property, you're part of the problem. Mm. Look, they tried to explain to me that everything went wrong in my Arab family the day my grandfather left Lebanon. He sold out his heritage to come to America and get a piece of the American dream. Your granddad was corrupt the minute he made that decision. Then your father doubled down and he taught American history and he coached because he wanted acceptance from the general white culture and he wanted the white picket fence. Don't you see, Lee? You're a sellout to your people. And I would just laugh because I couldn't even get mad at something so ridiculous. I didn't think anything like that would ever take hold. But those kids didn't hate me because I was an Arab or because I was white. They hate me, hated me because of my choices and how I thought. So know this, they're not anti-Semitic, these kids on the campuses. They, and that's why when they say, I don't hate Jews, I not only believe them, I know this is true. They hate Israel. They would love a Jew who said the Palestinians are right and Israel's wrong. And by the way, in those marches, there are Jewish kids up until 10-7. A lot of young Jewish kids were completely against the state of Israel. And there are lots of liberal Jews that I knew who wouldn't talk to me anymore because they said, oh, you're with the white people now in America and Israel and you're against the Palestinians. And I'm going, but you're Jewish. And they would say, you know, yeah, I'm Jewish, but I, 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 rep, I feel for the oppressed because we're oppressed. I go, oh, you're buying into this mindset. You're, you're, you're going to lose it. And one day you're going to regret having that mindset. I promise you, 
And by the way, many of them have. I've watched them on, on their Instagrams and their Facebook posts, my progressive Jewish friends who were now going, oh my goodness, I had no idea it could get this bad. Uh-huh. Well, of course it would. By the way, in that Negev desert, those kids celebrating, I have good word that many of those kids were right there on the edge of Gaza because they sympathized with Gaza. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with sympathizing with Gaza. Those poor people living in Gaza, I pity them. They're hostages to Hamas. They're hostages to Hamas. But those kids, many of them probably adopted the narrative that if only Israel treated those Palestinians better, we wouldn't have a problem. That's rubbish. And many of those kids died because of that, because that's why they were in the Negev Desert. And these were celebratory, new love, new age kids Mm. being taught a lesson by Hamas and about good and evil. And these kids learned fast that there is such a thing as good and evil. And they might not have believed it until they met that evil face to face. And what a tragedy to have not only your illusions shattered, but your life lost because you believed in those illusions. Yeah. And, and and that's happened, I think, all over the world because of ten seven. So let's so now let's talk about um, what I mean. Have you addressed this at all, or, or have you thought about this uh, in terms of the whole um, terrorist angle? <laughs> uh, the the fact that really you know the plan of terrorists is to take over the West. They've already taken over Europe, Western Europe, and uh, and and there are. We are in more danger today than if we were at 9-11. You know, terrorists are coming across the border. Uh, You know, they've caught some on the terrorist watch list, but that's a small minority of how many are already here. Um, So we, you know, we're in, it's amazing that there wasn't, there wasn't more of an attack. Well, I mean, we haven't gotten to Christmas yet. (laughs) I guess we haven't really. We haven't really, we're still in the holiday season. Um, I mean, I think that there is a good chance that there are going to be attacks during the holidays. Um, you know, I mean, not to say that, you know, they, they already started, of course, uh, protesting the Christmas lighting in, in uh, New York City and so on. But but I think, um, what do you think about the fact that people in America, the majority, do not, are, are blind to the the danger that they're in by from terrorists? Well, you know, look, I, there's there's dangers around us everywhere. And the aggregate, now I do this with gun people all the time. I, I was at a gun rights march not long ago where these kids were like, oh, the kids are getting shot in schools. I said, how many kids have actually been shot in mass school shootings since Columbine? 100,000? 50,000? And they all thought it was 100,000 or 50,000. And it was two, under 200 mm. in 20 years. So I actually look at threats through real threat assessments. That is the number of people killed by a certain activity. Driving is still the number one way we die every day. Mm-hmm. Number one, what we eat is the number one way we die every day. Our chances, and look, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a person who comes from the Middle East. I don't like terrorist attacks. And I think they're out there. But, but, but our ability to control the lone wolf or the 10 lone wolves is, has been, and always will be very difficult. I went to a law school where a lot of my friends went to Quantico, then went into the FBI and into counterterrorism. And they see the threats everywhere. They stop many of them, but it's in the end very hard to stop the one guy who wants to blow himself up at a mall or near the grid. But I think Americans and the world in the West have never been safer from war and, and death than the last 30 or 40 years compared to what we had to live through through World War I, 
World War II, state-spawned real state terrorism like Nazis, right? I mean, we're 60 million people die in six years. Remember this, 60 million people die. Now, in America, we've lost about 4,000 to terrorism in the last, you know, 30 years. And by the way, that's a lot of people, 4,000. But inner city gangsters have shot 50,000 kids. Okay, but... We need to be paying more attention to counterterrorism, to doing things to stop this from happening. I don't want to become France, you know, or or, or the UK. But I think what the problem of France and the UK wasn't a terrorism problem as much as it was an immigration problem that became a criminal law problem. Well, so you got to solve the one problem, which I don't think, thank goodness, you know, I think immigration is up for grabs in this coming election. I think in the next two and three elections, Americans are going to vote on this issue in states, in state houses. Enough is enough. And if we stop that tide, we have 340 million people in this country. We have a big country. So if we can stop this tide, we won't suffer from what London did where they have, by the way, remember this too, Europe's not having any babies, none. So they've got a problem. If they don't let in immigrants, they're done. And where are they going to get their immigrants from? Europe? That, no, they've got to take them from North Africa. Well, they've got to well, take them from the, the Middle taking East. Taking them from countries that are are you know don't want to follow the European country, uh, customs culture. They want their own, and a lot of these people are from radical Islamist places, and they're bringing that to to Europe. Couldn't agree more. And that Europe should have Europe's terrorism problem is really, I think, in the end, it's an immigration issue. And they weren't willing to solve it. But by the way, I think this is a very big issue in almost every European race in this in the in 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 Europe for the next twenty years. This will be the top issue. Well, if they're still around by then, America is going crazy with who they're letting in. That's the problem. Um, All right. Unfortunately, we have to stop. (laughs) This is a great conversation. Great. Um, Thank you so much for making so much of this clear. Uh, to people, including me. And uh, again, my my guest is Lee Habib. He's the Newsweek, a Newsweek columnist. He's the vice president of content at Salem Media Group, and he's the host of Our American Stories. So Lee, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, too. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.